The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 24th chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, About that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will become so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of a new church year, and for the next year, most of our Gospel readings will be from the Gospel of Matthew. I'll be honest, I dread preaching on Matthew's Gospel, and it's because the good news of Jesus Christ is wrapped in so much bad news, so much law. I like Mark and Luke much better, and you know, we just finished a whole year of preaching on Luke, which is my favorite, and I like those because the grace of God in Christ is more obvious in the presentations of the ministry of Jesus. But I do like preaching in Advent, where our call is to focus upon our hope in Christ, despite the dangers and threats around us. For Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses, the one who fulfills the Hebrew scriptures and the law. We know that Matthew's gospel was written at the same time that Judaism was being reinvented by the rabbis. <clears throat> they had to do that because the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Romans in 70 AD meant that the center of their religious practice, the temple, had been destroyed. And as a result, Judaism had to become a religion of the book and of the law. Or in other words, only Pharisaic Judaism survived. Temple Judaism was gone after 70 AD. And we believe that Matthew's gospel was written somewhere in that decade or so after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was at the same time that Judaism was being reinvented. So there was a kind of conflict between the two of them. And this influence of the reformulation of Judaism shows in Matthew's gospel being divisible into five books, like the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. We see it in the Sermon of the Mount parallels 
to Moses' speeches in, in Exodus. We hear it in the woes that are in Matthew chapter 23 and in the parables of judgment that are in chapter 25. In this, chapter 24's depiction of the return of the Messiah in images that evoke war and destruction like that visited on Jerusalem by the Romans, we hear the scars of that terrible time. Mark and Luke also have chapters like this that are written in apocalyptic language, and we read those chapters during the years of, in Advent, during the years when most of the gospel readings are from Mark or from Luke. But the point is twofold, that we are to be ready for the return of the Lord and that we cannot predict when it will be and we should not even try to predict it. Readiness means to be focused on the work that Jesus has given us to do, caring for the sick, the orphans and widows, visiting those who are in prison, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, and preaching the good news of God's grace. We are not to be focused on ourselves, questioning whether or not we or anyone else is adequately prepared, but we're to be focused on the Lord. When Jesus says, about that hour or day, no one knows, he goes on to make it more pointed. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. There's no obvious distinction between the two, no reason or explanation given. Instead, it's like the effects of war of a, or of a disaster, which are indiscriminate. Jesus makes no attempt to make sense of this other than to tell us to trust God's grace. The efforts to make sense of this passage and other similar ones have been unfortunate and unbiblical. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Left Behind series. If you are, aren't, don't waste your time looking it up. Um, it's been dubbed the Home Alone series by one Lutheran theologian. Uh, this series plays on people's fears and the common human tendency to gawk at accident scenes so we can figure out how we're not at risk of the same fate. But the real problem with the series is it takes this line, two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left, and assumes that we want to be among those who are taken. This rapture thing is about being taken up into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here is that the one who is taken is destroyed. You want to be one of the ones who are remain, who are left behind. So the Left Behind series and the idea of a rapture is based on the work of John Nelson Darby, a 19th century preacher who, in response to the fears about the turn of the 20th century, developed a theory called premillennial dispensationalism. You don't need to remember this. <clears throat> but it uses the Bible for proof texts. But it's not biblical because it does exactly what Jesus told us not to do, speculating about the end of all things and misinterpreting what he says in this chapter. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, in case of the rapture, this car will be unoccupied. Or 
the other bumper sticker that says, if, um, in case of the rapture, can I have your car? According to Jesus in this gospel reading, we want to be among those who remain, not those who are taken, because those who are taken are destroyed. And since we remain on the earth, the issue becomes readiness for the Lord's return. It's easy to turn this into law, what we have to do or should be doing, but there is another way to look at readiness for the Lord's return. And it comes from, of all places, chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel and the parable of judgment. The king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Readiness is not just doing what Jesus calls us to do, but it is recognizing Jesus in the people that he sends, people in need of the good news and of our help. What keeps us from doing these things? Well, usually it's worry about the future. Will I have enough time or resources if I give to someone else? Or it's an unacknowledged scar from the past. The last time I helped someone, something bad happened to me, or I wished I still had what I gave away. It's very difficult to stay in the present, to be fully awake to and aware of what is happening now, to be fully present to whomever is in front of me right now. Consequently, we can miss the Lord's return, his presence with us now. As an illustration, when we recite the creed in a few minutes, try not to let your mind wander and see how successful you are. Most of, mostly, our thoughts slide off into other times and places. What happened yesterday or last week? What I'm going to do this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow? Being present in the moment right now is preparation for the Lord's return, being ready for the Lord's return. Being present is not easy. It takes discipline and focus. Readiness is not just doing what Jesus calls us to do, but it's recognizing Jesus in the people that he sends to us, people in need of the good news and of our help. Anytime I drive up Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, um, I'm reminded of when I was working in that neighborhood. And anytime I would walk by the McDonald's on Chestnut Street near the University of Pennsylvania, it always cost me money. And the reason was I tried to take this seriously. And if someone came up to me in front of McDonald's and asked me for money so they could go in and buy food, I would say, no, but let's go inside and I'll buy you a meal. And I would buy them whatever they wanted and pay for it. Because 
here they were, right in front of me. And that was something I could do, and having been an urban pastor for a long time, no, I wasn't going to get taken for something. You know, they actually eat the food, you know. The money wasn't going to be used for something else. It's being present, seeing Jesus in people who are in need. This is what Isaiah envisioned when he wrote, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord shines on us in baptism, but the focus isn't on us or what we can do, but on what God is doing and has done. We are just to pay attention, to notice. The redeemed world which the Lord is inviting us to imagine and inhabit will not be our doing, but God's. It's not our light in which we walk, but the Lord's. We prepare for the Lord. We are ready for his return by walking in his light on the way to the cross and resurrection by being present to those before us, by being undistracted. We walk in this light not to earn something from the Lord, but because we have been claimed, named, and redeemed by the Lord in baptism. We are the beloved of the Lord through, in Christ through the Spirit. Let us walk in the light of the Lord today and every day. Amen.